Hello, readers. Dr. Myron Roll is a former NFL safety, a Rhodes Scholar, and a neurosurgery resident and global neurosurgery fellow at Harvard Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also the founder and chairman of the Myron L. Roll Foundation, a nonprofit organization that supports global health, wellness, education, and other charitable initiatives benefiting children and families in need. And he has just told his unique and inspiring story in a new book titled The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery. Dr. Roll, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It's a real pleasure getting to speak with you. So uh, I guess a basic first question for context and something that's obviously a part of this title, what exactly is the 2% way? Well, the 2% way is a, a philosophy that was brought to me by my football coach at Florida State University, Mickey Andrews. He got it from his coach at University of Alabama, Paul Bear Bryant. It's this 2% of growth, 2% of small practical steps of improvement every single day. And he wanted us to do that in every practice, whether it be how we tackled, uh, our stamina, our ability to disguise blitz packages, our ability to high point the football. He challenged us every day, just get a little bit better. Because if we did that, then we would be in position to compete against the Virginia Techs or the Miamis or the Floridas or the Clemsons of the world. And uh, he would actually take this mindset and bring it to the locker room and write on the board, Myron roll 1% or Myron roll 2%. And the guys on the team would vote, well, did roll get 1% or 2% better today? And uh, it was a way to keep us accountable. So I, I sort of extrapolated this, this ideology to life. And so that any chance encounter that I have, any book I read, any conference I attend, any person I meet, I'm trying to grab 2% from that experience and add it to my own journey so I can be a better version of myself. And in this book, I really talk about how you can take larger seemingly overwhelming problems and you can break them down 2% at a time and have those small victories, small wins every day so that a month, six months or a year from now, you can look back and see the level of improvement that you've achieved. And so we're excited about it. I use my story arc to tell this message about this 2% way. And uh, we think it's going to really resonate with a lot of people. I completely agree with that. And early on, you write that to fulfill your potential and find your place in the world, you really need to understand what you want to achieve and why. And this requires you to examine your foundations. What do you mean by examining your foundations? Well, I, I think, you know, we, we have to know where we're going uh, and we have to really understand our purpose and our place here. Um, you know, whether it's to to care for someone from a medical standpoint through health or whether it's to uh, help mentor or whether it's um, to teach, uh, whatever it may be, I think it's important for us to see the value that we have in this world. We all do. We really do. And I think the way that we sort of get to that point is definitely reading, definitely using other individuals to help be your mentors, help guide you through leaning on family, leaning on people who love you and want to see you rise and succeed. And so it's incredibly important to sort of know where you're coming from. See, my family and I, we came from the Bahamas and my parents really put a firm foundation of education in our minds early uh, so that there was no question about what came first, what was the premium, what was the, um, you know, the number one sort of uh, item on the list of things that I wanted to accomplish in America. And so understanding that and understanding that I had the ability to think through complex problems and understanding that I love the brain after reading about Dr. Ben Carson and all of his wonderful exploits he did at Johns Hopkins as a pediatric neurosurgeon, I knew that once I was done playing football, the next move in my life would be neurosurgery, trying to help people, trying to cure people, uh, trying to be a difference maker in medicine in and out of the operating theater. So uh, yes, examining your foundation, 
knowing who you are, knowing where you want to go, and then the process of taking small steps every day uh, is, I think, a great way how you can get there and help other people along the way, too. I do want to get a little bit more into how Gifted Hands impacted you shortly. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your parents. They both seem like uh, two incredible people on their own, much less to come together as a team to raise you and your siblings. What was your uh, mummy like uh, growing up for you? Mummy was amazing. Mummy is, uh, she is a rock star. She's a superhero. Uh, all of the superlatives you can think of. You know, there was a time in my life, about eight or nine years, and I write about this in a book, when we were relatively poor. I mean, honestly, we... Lights were shut off. We had to borrow money from coaches or neighbors, um, holes in my clothes, holes in my cleats. Um, I remember one time when we had to actually keep the car on uh, as she drove us to practice uh, and just stayed and waited because she was scared if she turned it off, it wouldn't start back again. And this was prior to Uber or anything like that. So, um, but to make all ends meet, she worked two, three jobs, cooked and cut our hair uh, right in the kitchen prior to school. And always gave us a dollar 40 for lunch money, you know, never felt like, you know, we, we didn't really, I didn't really know I was poor until like after until I was like, okay, yeah, now I see where we were coming from. But let me just continue to try to keep the family afloat. And then when daddy uh, finally ended up, you know, getting a job, uh, and then making a lot of money with this job, then mommy was able to pull back from her responsibilities. But she's fantastic. Both my parents are amazing. Uh, they focus on education for us. They were strict on discipline. They want to make sure that we loved each other, loved our brothers. Uh, we loved Christ. You know, our faith was really, really important to us as well. And we always stay connected to being in the Bahamas or at least the culture in the Bahamas. Even though we grew up in New Jersey, uh, it was important for mommy and daddy to have us that mind, that the mindset of, you know, even though we left, we still have to think about home, think about how we can better home, think about how we can connect with home, think about how we can still eat the same foods that we eat at home. So uh, I love my parents for that as well. But they're they're amazing. Been married 50 years. Uh, they're phenomenal. And Mummy is the champion for sure. And there's a, an interesting anecdote that I think helps explain just the wisdom that your father would impart on you throughout your life. Uh, according to this book, if I'm re remembering correctly, you have been directly called the N-word two times in your life. The first was in grade school, I believe on a school bus that led to you uh, chasing after and throttling the kid who said that horrific word. And uh, afterwards, his uh, his family tries to take you to court as a result. How do you, did your dad react to all this news of uh, wh how you had responded to being called something so despicable? You know, he, um, he was upset uh, that it happened and he sort of understood uh, why, why I reacted the way I did. Um, but he was obviously ashamed, embarrassed, and wanted me to think about handling these situations in a different way. Um, you know, that there's, there's, there has to be a moment where we um, understand that these kind of reactions and responses uh, could lead to deleterious consequences down the line. And that's about, about maturity, and that's about growth. It's about progress. Um, that's about putting behind us childish things and moving into adulthood in a way. And so, uh, yeah, you know, my father is a fighter. He's, he's not conflict averse at all, but um, he realized that this moment uh, for us to really achieve everything we wanted to achieve in the United States of America, uh, we could not respond to every racial epithet or any, every single slight that we heard. Uh, so that was a, a, a really, really important lesson for me and my brothers to learn at a young age. You described him at stoic at one point in this book. Do you think you've taken on his stoic persona as an adult? I do. I do think so. And I think that's been very helpful um, because it gives me the opportunity to observe, take in and absorb uh, all of the facts, all of, you know, the, all the situation 
and then make a deliberate calculated decision. Um, you know, when I'm faced with a complex case in the hospital, um, you know, I, I leave emotion behind and say, okay, what, what can we do to best help this patient, best help their families, um, and, and really optimize this experience. And emotion has to be put away for a second. And then we move into facts, we move into training, we move into fundamentals, we move into the evidence, and we move into the advantages that a hospital like Mass General Hospital has as far as resources and personnel and even equipment to help make this case go the way it does. So learning that from daddy was huge. I don't stay disconnected from the case or, or from situations in a, in a way where, um, you know, I feel like I'm a robot, um, but I, I, I suppress it enough where I'm able to allow facts and, and, and my cerebral thinking to lead. And then, you know, I, I keep, you know, my heart and keep my passion into it uh, through that it sort of follows right behind. And it's been, uh, um, you know, a good formula for me. Yeah, that's a misconception about stoicism that I think is finally starting to get busted now. It's not that you're a robot. You have emotions. You recognize your emotions. You just don't let those emotions linger and affect other decisions going forward, right? You're absolutely right. You know, especially in something like medicine where you have to continue to keep yourself even and keep yourself sort of um, leading with uh, intellect and leading with evidence-based medicine and practice. Uh, that's incredibly important. You know, families want you to be invested into the care, and we are, um, but they also want you to do the best you can. And in my opinion, my best performance happens when I'm able to block out or, or suppress the background noise and just focus on how I can help treat you, how I can help get you back to your family, how I can help get you back to your job or to walk in a dog or whatever else it is that you love to do outside of the hospital. A few answers ago, you mentioned ben, uh, Dr. Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands. Why is this one of the most influential books in your life? So, you know, leaving the Bahamas and coming to America, my parents and my brothers wanted um, me to have these inspirational figures who look like me in front of me. Um, Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, Kofi Annan, Nelson Mandela, Malcolm X. Uh, but the story that really resonated with me was Dr. Ben Carson's story. Um, black man from a modest you know, background, not very affluent, so very similar to my uh, formative and adolescent years. Um, parents focused on education, saw that too. Had a temper like I had as well, uh, but just moved all that stuff aside and continued to uh, his upward trajectory where he was able to ascend uh, and being the youngest chair of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins and then separating these two twins who were conjoined at the occipital lobe and having both of them live First time that case has ever been done. I mean, a over 15 hours surgery with multiple providers and multiple professionals coming in uh, to help with that case, but it was a phenomenal thing. And uh, so seeing that, seeing his story, seeing what I could possibly become outside of uh, sports or football in particular, seeing that the brain was just such an amazing thing that he talked about, how this organ can control speech and temperature and heart rates and respiratory rates and move my fingers and move my toes at the same time or help me dream or help me think about different things that are five years ago and think about it like it's happening today. I mean, just amazing what the brain can do. That, that just sort of drew me in. And so from that point forward, he went onto my wall as my academic hero. And I knew that once I finished playing football, I was gonna move into the space of the brain, of the central nervous system, and then neurosurgeons sort of became uh, the, the, the obvious target for me. And so I'm, I'm glad because I, even though it was something that I thought about when I was in fifth grade, now as a 35 year old 
with four children and a wife, I'm still as fired up about it like I was when I first read his book in fifth grade. Uh, that's really cool to hear. So uh, we've focused on the intellect so far, but uh, all the while, even as a kid, you knew that you were an exceptional athlete. And this led to you uh, getting opportunities as an adolescent. It started with you uh, spending, I think, your freshman and sophomore year at Petty Prep School. And uh, you really didn't fit in at Petty Prep School. This was mostly a bunch of rich white kids. And here you are, a, a black kid from the middle class who uh, was maybe given some respect because of your athletic prowess, but uh, people didn't think much of you intellectually. Having said that, it's interesting that you got into one fight while at Petty Prep, and it didn't necessarily involve having to, uh, to, to beat up entitled white kids. What exactly happened there? No, yeah, I mean, uh, it, was, uh, it was difficult. Sometimes you're, the, the enemies come from within, and, um, you know, it was a difficult situation where in, in high school, I was... Uh, a good student and a good athlete, uh, tried to speak with the proper English as my parents would, would want me to, uh, tried to be you know, a good, responsible, and respectful um, young man. Uh, but to a group of young people in our school who look like me, uh, who came from disadvantaged backgrounds as well, um, and they were on scholarships kind of like I was, uh, they saw me as maybe a sellout or as we say, an Uncle Tom in our Black community, uh, where you're not real, right? You're not official. You're not one of us. You think you're better than us. And so the way to sort of challenge that is either throwing jokes or maybe even throwing hands. And this young man put his hands on me. Uh, and I told you, I am, I, I, I have it. I had a temper. <laughs> I did. I did. I still had it. And my daddy, I called him to ask him, you know, what should I do? you know, am I going to get suspended? Or like what he said, go get that young man. <laughs> so daddy, <laughs> not conflict averse, said, go get him, gave me the green light. And I went and beat up this kid too, but he looked like me. And it's, you know, it wasn't the white kids who were, um, you know, very rich and had parents that looked at me in sort of denigrating ways at times. It was someone who looked like me, who was coming from the same background. It was black on black. It was two people who should, who should have been joining together to you know, find solace in our own community, but also try to achieve in this phenomenal academic environment. It was us butting heads, and um, and uh, yeah, and so the fight went on, and thankfully neither one of us really got in trouble after it. Um, but uh, we we have since become friends. We're cordial now, me and that young gentleman. I don't have any animosity towards him. I think it was just you know a misunderstanding between two people who were trying to get to the same place, but didn't know how to. Uh, didn't know how to get there and didn't know how to express and coexist with each other and trying to get to those same places. So uh, that was a, that was a learning experience for sure. So after two years at Petty Prep, you end up spending your last two years at Hun School of Princeton. Why was the time there so much more valuable for you and your growth as a person? Well, we started winning a lot in football and I had a really good relationship with the football coach and, uh, you know, winning cures all, as I say, I just, the whole vibe, the whole environment, the energy was, was much better at that school. Both schools are academically superior. They are remarkable institutions. I love for my children to have a chance to go to one of those prep schools, but the athletic side, I think was certainly tilted towards the Hun school. Um, it's a, um, it's a boarding school, but it's got a lot of day students and it has sort of a public school feel to it. It has the little public school edge to it. So I think that along with the winning that we did on the football field, along with my relationship with my head football coach, uh, Dave Dudek, I think all of that together um, really sort of solidified this place as, as a spot that I wanted to be at and, um, and, and a place that, you know, I can find 
you know, my, my, my rhythm, my pace, uh, and prepare myself for the next level uh, at Florida State, Texas, USC, Notre Dame, Michigan, any of the 83 schools that offer me scholarships coming out uh, of high school. Every major program offers you a scholarship. Uh, you are the number one recruit in the country as a safety. Uh, what ultimately sold you on Florida State from the time that you spent on your official visit in Tallahassee? Well, the real answer uh, I'll give you, because this is a real interview, um, was, you know, one, Samari went to Florida State, my cousin, Samari yeah. Roll. I love him. I watched him forever, um, and he is a hero of mine. Two, Bobby Bowden was great, sort of like a grandfather figure, and my parents trusted that I can go down there and he can lead me to be a better human, a better Christian. He was incredibly involved in Fellowship of Christian Athletes down at Florida State, and Matter of fact, our first visit, he like opened up his big Bible on his desk and started talking to me 30 minutes about Christ as opposed to X's and O's or cover two or cover three or fire zones or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think the, the, the reason that really tipped Florida State over the top was the fact that if I went to Michigan or Northwestern or Stanford or Duke or Notre Dame, I'd be, or Cal Berkeley, I'd be another smart student athlete, another smart football player. But if I went to Florida State University, I'd be the smart football player and they would they would put their resources behind me uh, to you know, achieve the Rhodes Scholarship or to achieve a Fulbright or a Marshall or a Truman or to you know, meet Jeb Bush or Charlie Chris, the governors of Florida at the time when I was in school or or just do wonderful things. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as I got there, I was in front of boosters. I was in front of the trustees. I sat on a board of trustees to, to interview for our athletic director. I was meeting all these important distinguished people, especially Jeb Bush and Charlie Chris, met them multiple times, even met Rick Scott when he was a governor and, and spent some time in his office. I started my foundation in the Big Bend area. I got to work with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. I was on billboards, on institutional commercials. You know, I think they really wanted to see me do have success because the, the re academic reputation of Florida State wasn't as hot, right? It's not as hot as maybe University of Florida in the same state or the other institutions that I mentioned. Um, but they said, here's a guy who we want to push and we know he's got the potential. And when I won the Rhodes Scholarship, I remember the president of our university saying, you know, Myron Roll is winning this scholarship, um, but not just for himself, for us as well. He's got he's got the Florida State on his back. Like, he, you know, this is going to help our reputation. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've talked to many fans before when they get into, you know, sort of competitive co um, conversations with. Uh, Miami or Clemson fans or Georgia fans or, or, you know, whatever fans, they say, well, at least we got a road scholar and you guys don't, <laughs> you know, so like they, they throw that out there. So I knew Florida state would, would like me to be that person for them. And I knew I can get something from FSU as well. So it was a really cool synergistic symbiotic relationship that we had. And uh, it was a blessing. And I loved every minute of going to Florida state. So needless to say, all these years later, nearly 20 years later, you still bleed garnet and gold. All day. Not only do I bleed garden and gold, but my brothers end up going there. My kids now have FSU, no girl shirts, no boy shirts. I'm all in FSU. I went to medical school there too. So this is, it's a place that really runs through me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I block out every Saturday to watch them, whether I'm in Boston, you know, in Harvard, I'll, I'll be on rounds looking on my phone to see what the boys are doing. Uh, I just, I love the school and uh, the environment, the vibe, the, the city of Tallahassee has been really good to me and my family. Don't want to end up too far off course here, but uh, do you have confidence that uh, they're close to turning things around there then? You know, I, I do. Uh, I, I've met Coach Norvell, and I spent a, couple, a little bit of time with him. 
Uh, I think he's a great leader. Um, and I think that it took some time for the guys to buy into his, his style, going from Willie Taggart, who was a little bit more player friendly and sort of, you know, um, understood the, uh, you know, the, the backgrounds that a lot of players came from who Florida State recruits. Uh, and that Mike Norvell is coming from a small school, not small school, but smaller school. Memphis than, than Florida State. Uh, he's got a sort of a grinded out mindset. He's always been sort of that like work is going to, we're going to outwork you and work is going to be the equalizer, right? Like this, this is what we're going to do. And now the guy is realizing it's not about the flash of the swag. We are not FSU of the Deion Sanders era or the Chris Winkie era or of the, you know, work done era, whatever era you want to say. This is now Florida State we have here today. And our our ability to get back into the center spotlight is going to be through the grind, through the work. And I think the guys are buying into that. So I'm excited to see what the product on the field looks like this year. Good luck to you guys. We're uh, dealing with our own struggles here in Austin. So hopefully both programs could get it going again at the same time. Now you discuss a number of epiphanous moments in your life. One such moment happened uh, during your college career at a San Francisco Denny's late at night prior to the bowl game that the Seminoles were playing that year in San Francisco at the Giants AT&T Park. What happened and how did it affect you going forward? Uh, Yeah, so my freshman year and, uh, you know, I was coming off a really, really stellar year honestly I was ACC defensive rookie of the year freshman all-american in every publication you could think of and um, I love breakfast food I mean I love Waffle House I love Village Inn I'm I'm all in Whataburger breakfast all the time I just I, I love it and so one night I just wanted to get some breakfast on my own uh, I do like moving around solo uh, I go to movies alone I just this is my space to sort of collect my thoughts and so I went to this Denny's in San Francisco I sat down and um, immediately was just struck by the waitress that was, um, you know, waiting my table. Uh, she was this older Asian lady who just looked like she had pain and, and, and a story on her face, a story of hurt, a story of loneliness, a story of, you know, disconnect, a story of fatigue, just everything just seemed like it was all painted on her face. If her face was a canvas, then all of these emotions and all of these feelings were just wrought uh, onto onto her face and onto her body and her energy and it immediately hit me I just I just I, I didn't know what to do I was trying to eat my food that she was giving me but I got no joy in the breakfast I had no joy in the food I had no joy in that space and so I left and started crying I broke down and just started crying and I called my brother he didn't really know what to say to me at that point I'm bawling on the phone with him then I called Mickey Andrews the D coordinator the one who taught me the two percent way uh, and this was late at night, almost like 10 or something at night. And his wife is in the room too. And he said, like, yeah, come over, Myron. You know, I asked him if I can come over. So I go to his, his hotel room. Uh, he's on the 10th floor. I think I'm on the fifth floor or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but his wife goes into the bathroom. I don't know this, um, but she's in the bathroom. I go into his room, bawling, like tears everywhere, snot, just like can't control myself. I'm trying to explain to him how this woman who I don't know did not talk to her, did not get her name, did not listen to her story, but I just felt there was something in her spirit that was tugging at my spirit. And I didn't know how to explain that feeling of just emotional, just outbursts. And um, he was telling me, you know, Myron, and he, and he comforted me. He said, Myron, you know, I think that's the Lord telling you that he wanted you to reach out to that woman. He wanted you to say something to her. He wanted you to bless her, pray for her. Um, it's okay to have these feelings. I was expecting my rough and tough coach to like slap me and tell me like, you know, get on with it. You know, you're better, you're tough. Blah, blah, blah. But he was, he was, he was um, very peaceful. He was calming. He was comforting. Uh, he was understanding, he put his hand on my shoulder. I love coach for that. I mean, I, 
I don't, I don't know if I've ever loved anyone. Like I've loved coach prior to that or like, you know, a, a non-family member, but that mm-hmm. moment said, this is, this man is more than a coach. He's a father figure. He's a leader. He is, he's a friend. He's a brother in Christ. And I remember going back from uh, my, my, that room, going back to my hotel room and then his wife calling me up and, and telling me, Myron, you know, I, I heard everything that you said, Mickey, and uh, you said to Mickey, and I want to let you know I'm proud of you. And let's do something. Let's go together, dress up tomorrow, and let's go meet this woman. Let's go say hi to her. So I was like, oh, thank you. Like, this is not it. Like, we're not finished with this, right? So we go have our team dinner the next day. I dress up. She dresses up. He dresses up. We're all in our Sunday best. And everybody's like, why are you dressed up? We said, don't worry about it. We're going. So we took a cab to that same Denny's. Unfortunately, that Denny's uh, was closed that day. And I never got a chance to speak to that woman. But if she's still around today, I would tell her that, I, I, you know, I love her and I would love to pray for her. Uh, it was a very existential sort of moment for me to sort of come into this space of understanding my feelings, understanding the pull that humans can have on each other, even if you don't know them or know their name. It really moved me to the next level of being a leader. And I appreciate my coach for helping me through that moment and his wife. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Another epiphany was during high school at the Hun School of Princeton, which was right across the street from Princeton University. It was there that you first saw a bronze statue of Bill Bradley, who was identified as a Rose Scholar on the plaque below his name. As a collegiate, you lived a life that allowed you the chance to pursue a Rhodes Scholarship, as you talked about a little bit earlier. Rhodes Scholars are judged by four standards. To summarize, it's literary and scholastic attainments, fairness and success of outdoor sports, a litany of qualities that boil down to empathy and putting others before yourself, and to be a leader in a manner that uh, it uh, t- can turn into a public duty as your highest aim when it's all said and done. In an effort to prepare for this, you started a program within the Seminole Tribe. What exactly was it? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the Seminole Tribe of Florida, they are down in Okeechobee uh, and Miccosukee, South Florida. Uh, we obviously use their name uh, as, our, as our mascot. Uh, but Florida State has got a great relationship with the Seminole Tribe. Um, you know, if you are a average to decent student, you can get into Florida State with a free ride uh, and you provide a lot of opportunities to further grow uh, as, a, as a leader. And, um, and we, we often do a lot of events that um, honor and celebrate uh, the unconquered spirit of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. So uh, it's fantastic. And, and in thinking about ways that I could be more than just an athlete, whether I can get outside of my athletic bubble. Looking at the statistics, reading articles, uh, I just saw that so many uh, American Indian tribes were um, ostracized and marginalized, especially even in the state of Florida. I said, this group was looked at as drunkards, maybe suicidal, violent. Uh, Now their children are becoming obese and hypertensive uh, and diabetic, not adult, not childhood, diabetes or type one, but like type two diabetes early when they're like 12 or 13 years old based on, you know, poor diet and things of that nature. Um, and so I said, this is, this is an issue. This is a group that I think is incredibly vulnerable. And at Florida State, if we have an opportunity to connect with this group, maybe there's a way where I can play a part in their achieving of their health goals and their fitness goals. And so uh, I had a chance to meet with their, um, the chief of the tribe down in Okeechobee, I met with uh, one of the main elders, Louise Gopher. She's a phenomenal woman. Met with her family. I went and learned some Creek language down there. I taught a course, a summer course down there. Uh, and then I created the uh, Our Way to Health, uh, this anti-obesity program at Pemietta Emahaga, which is 
um, the school, the Brighton School on the Okeechobee Reservation. And it was fantastic. We, 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 we had uh, academic curriculum and athletic curriculum and the, the, we broke them up in teams, made it competitive and the team that won got to come onto the field with me uh, at the uh, intermission of our Virginia Tech Florida State football game at Dope Campbell. And um, they uh, got introduced in front of all the crowds, 80,000 people. They loved it to this day. I still communicate and stay in touch with those American Indian kids. And it was a, it was a blessing to be able to you know, think about more than just myself. When you're a student athlete, you're like, oh man, I just got to get to the NFL or get to the next level or, you know, find a cool girl or, you know, wear nice clothes or get money or whatever. But to me, it was like my, my moment at Florida State was meant for this. I'm at Florida State. I'm wearing Seminole on my shirt. I need to do more. I need to think more. What can I offer to this group? Well, I can offer health. I can offer wellness. I can offer, you know, how to be um, a better version of yourself. And so uh, it was a blessing to start that. And, and it became a part of my foundation. And then once the U.S. Uh, Department of Interior heard about this, they actually adopted my program and placed it in the Pueblo Hopi uh, Indians of uh, New Mexico and Arizona. So it became sort of a national program, and we were, we were very grateful for that. You have to feel pretty proud about that all these years later, Myron. Yes, very proud, very proud. I mean, God's been a blessing, and I have some wonderful people uh, behind me to, um, to help, you know, the vision come true. You know, I... I I'm often somebody who thinks about things and um, you know tries to, to sort of picture where I'm going. The Bible talks about where there is no vision, people will perish. But none of this is possible without the process or without the backing and footing of now my wife, my parents, my brother, my four older brothers, um, people like Samari who have been in my corner from the beginning, uh, who've loved on me and showed me you know so much support to buttress me forward. And so yes, absolutely, very proud of it. But. I know that it's um it's team effort and it's a it's a beautiful thing to have that. So the process uh, often involves failure. Honestly, the people who s- succeed the most in life fail a lot and learn the necessary lessons from those failures. It actually took you two different attempts to become a Rhodes Scholar. What happened the first time that derailed this process, and what was the lesson that you took going forward from that? Wow, yeah, that's uh, the first time I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, the judges were not ready ready to push me through. See. In the process of getting a Rhodes, you have to um, make it through your home institution first. And uh, you have to have the necessary qualifications. I think like over a 3.5 GPA, or write a personal statement. Then you have to do an interviews, series of interviews. Uh, and I was doing that at my home institution at FSU. And, uh, um, you know, I, uh, I just wasn't ready, you know, and, and I wasn't ready for the questions that they were going to ask. They, they baited me to go down a road and I did. And so the issue here, and I write about this in the book, um, you know, growing up in uh, in America, but in a Bahamian household and going home to the Bahamas all the time, you often hear the elders talk about the ills of our society. Like, what is, why is the Bahamas turning from being this land of sunshine and freedom and paradise uh, to a place with some violence and some corruption and, uh, you know, some, um, some really high crime? Uh, and then you would hear every elder say it's from our immigrants. The immigrant population is coming in, particularly the Haitian community. Uh, and so hearing that, just keep hearing that over and over again without putting any of my own thought to it. I just said, okay, this must be how it is, right? I'm just taking what the people who I respect, my aunts, uncles, my pastors, my barbers back home, everybody who I love in the Bahamas this is what they're saying. Okay, well, let me go from it this way. And so when I went to this Rose Scholarship interview, one of the questions I was asked was, you know, why is the Bahamas, what are the ills of the Bahamas? What's the problems of the Bahamas? And immediately, it's almost a knee-jerk reaction, a re, uh, sort of a reflex in a way. I, I spouted out this 
you know, hatred of, of immigrants and, and this, this, you know, it was this other people, it's not us, it's them, it's not us. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, man, this is, this really sounds like a bigot. This really sounds like a separatist. This really sounds like not me. Um, and I knew that that wasn't what I should say or, or how I should say it. Um, and it wasn't even right. And the judges picked up on it and they sort of beating me down. They sort of needed their way into, uh, into this conversation and, and got me to, to even dig deeper that hole uh, that I was digging. And so they weren't ready to push me through based on uh, that sort of perspective. And I, I had to take the 2% way process to, um, to get better from that moment, to think about who I am, to start to become my own man and, and start to think about problems or issues uh, using my own intellect, this cerebral power that God has given me, let's use that and use your own experiences that you've had with outstanding Haitians to really inform how you think about crime or how you think about immigration in the Bahamas. And so uh, that was a good way to move from a, a, a very tragic moment to now moving into a position where uh, you can be a viable, can you can show that you're a viable candidate for the Rhodes Scholarship. So the second time around, Applying that 2% methodology, applying that 2% mindset, getting a little bit better every day and making sure that I become my own man in that process. I answered the questions much better. They were assured that I would do well. They pushed me through, put me to uh, the, the southern region of, um, of Rhodes Scholars, and I was accepted as a finalist. And the rest is history. I won the scholarship, and, and uh, it was a beautiful thing. How exhilarating was it to learn that you had won that Rhodes Scholarship? Very exhilarating. I won it the same day we were playing at University of Maryland, November 22nd, 2008. So remember the day uh, our team was up in College Park and uh, I was in uh, uh, Alabama, Mountain Brook, Alabama, right outside of Birmingham and um, interviewed. They said I won a scholarship, told my teammates, told my parents, they go, they're going crazy. Uh, and then I get a private plane that was approved by the NCAA to fly from uh, Birmingham's airport, private airport to uh, BWI get there when i get off the plane i have to get back on the plane because florida state's like media crew wasn't there yet so i had to like reenact like walking off the plane again i was like hey man i'm gonna be late for this game you guys you guys are doing the most but i uh i walk off the plane and i get a private escort uh, police is driving me and we get to the stadium and my parents are there to give me a huge hug uh dr jack Aroot is there in the sidelines i love him i used to watch him all the time on espn he's interviewing me uh, getting to the game in the second quarter, we're beating up Maryland, just beating them up left and right. Uh, and so I come to the game. I think I only have like two or three tackles, but you know, it, it, it was my, my services on that field weren't even necessary because I think the team was riding such an emotional high after me winning that scholarship. They doused me with a ice water and, um, and it was a, a wonderful day. It was a win uh, for many reasons. One on the football field for our team, another ACC opponent that we beat. It was a win as a uh, student athlete you know, around the world, around the country, people can see you can combine these two passions. And uh, it was a win for my family, uh, my, my friends back in New Jersey, my family back home in the Bahamas. It was a beautiful day. So this left you seemingly with a decision to make, Myron, because you had played well enough through your first three years at Florida State that you had the option of turning pro after your junior year and were a likely first round pick in the process. But Oxford was obviously there staring you in the face as well. And for you as somebody who values the intellect as much as you do, it was kind of a no brainer for you. And it wasn't like you were 
dissing the NFL in the process, but you were delaying that by a year to go pursue uh, excellence uh, through the road scholarship. What ultimately uh, allowed you to sleep easy with the decision to pursue the road scholarship versus the NFL uh, over the next, over the course of the next several months? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think for me, you know, I, I even, I thought about how I can do both, uh, maybe start with the NFL and then Rhodes scholarship. That's a little known fact. I actually asked the, the Oxford and Rhodes committee, can I postpone taking the road so I can go play in the NFL right now because I'm projected as a high draft pick. Um, and they said, no, it's either take it or not. So with that in mind, uh, it made the decision a little bit more complicated. I put my name into this scouting service that underclassmen can uh, at FSU and they said I'd be a first late first guy and I caught up Samari in Baltimore what his Ravens were saying uh, they said if I ran fast maybe late first early second I caught up Antro uh, he was in New York with the Giants and um, same thing they said maybe second round guy so I, I was feeling very confident that I was going to be a high draft pick and, and things were going to work out all the dra mock draft boards had me top 32 so it was exciting but Ultimately, I think what, what pushed me to go to education at Oxford was that, you know, NFL, the NFL was going to continue to be there. Um, and I've always placed a premium on the word student before athlete. And here's my chance to do it at a higher level. Plus, when other people see my story, maybe they can find inspiration from it. Like I found inspiration in Dr. Ben Carson's story, uh, that here's a guy who, you know, had this money and high draft pick and fame in front of him and he said no to it because he wanted to further his intellect, uh, wanted to find a social injustice and try to change it, wanted to immerse himself in a new culture, build networks of other outstanding leaders around the world who become his friends uh, and become his close confidants and he wanted to move forward. And, um, and now I've seen the benefits of that decision because many parents have come up to me uh, and even young people and say, I had you on my wall as a child. And I'm like, that sounds like what I did with Ben Carson. You know, I, I use your story to inspire my young athletes or my young students, or I use your story to inspire my daughter, or my son uh, to do more in their life. And so the decision had reverberating impact to generations that uh, initially I didn't think of, but eventually it became to fruition that this is, this was something that was bigger than me. It was beyond me. So if I had to make the sacrifice of not going to NFL right away, I'll stay in shape and try my hand at it. Uh, and I did. <laughs> I came back to the senior bowl and played well there. Did the combine pro day, got drafted in the sixth round instead of the first, made fifty, sixty thousand dollars in my signing bonus instead of four or five million, was a fifty-third man on the roster, practice squad instead of you know, twenty-second and playing. I had coaches in the Titans when I got drafted by Tennessee in the sixth round who said I can play for eight or nine years. They know I have the talent to do so. Uh, but for whatever reason, the stigma of the road scholarship and being smart and not really feeling like the people not feeling that I was committed to football uh, that um, prohibited sort of uh, my success in the NFL because I felt that I would leave at any second. Why would you invest money, a draft pick or a starting position on this gentleman or a roster spot on this guy who can leave in a midseason? And then we have to sort of scramble to find a replacement for him. So a lot of things were happening at the moment, but that road scholarship was so, so valuable. Uh, that I, if I had to make the decision again, I'd make the same decision because it led me here to this point uh, where I'm healthy and doing well uh, and still able to be a role model, thankfully, uh, for younger young women and men who, um, who see my story and draw inspiration from it.
consider you idolized him as a kid, it had to have been pretty cool to get to go to church with Dr. Carson that last Sunday before you moved to England. And he offered up some really sound advice in the process. What exactly did he tell you? He did. So I was at church with him and his wife, Candy, and uh, I was like, really expecting him to tell me something uh, as far as uh, neurosurgery uh, technical. Right? So like maybe uh, this is how you hold the tissue when you're trying to resect the brain tumor. or This is how you position the patient's head when you're you know, trying to enter the ventricles with a shunt or something very, very specific to neurosurgery. Because I wanted to know how I can be a better neurosurgeon one day in the future. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like him. Uh, and he, he didn't speak about medicine at all in that respect. He talked about people. He said, it's always, always remember uh, to be nice and say hi to the lunch ladies and janitors because they're people too. And that really hit me right? because you sometimes you walk through life and you think that the president or the CEO, the chairman of the department are the only ones that you ought to be nice to or say hi to. These individuals uh, who sometimes people um, look past, uh, these people, sometimes people look through, uh, they have stories, they are real people, they have genuine interest as well. And, um, and it keeps you humble, it keeps your feet on the ground. Sometimes the MD label, people think they have a God complex or you're like the mighty doctor that can do it all. Um, but in reality, we're all humans. We all have ups and downs, good days and bad days. And when you're able to connect with people uh, on a very human level, it just, it brightens up your day. I, I go through my hospital, Mass General Hospital, thinking what Dr. Carson told me, think about it all the time. And I say hi to everyone, right? Especially those individuals who are materials management, food transport, lunch ladies, or whatever the case may be. And my co-residents look at me like, how do you know all these people? I'm like, cause I talk to them, right? Like, cause I say hi to them, you know, right? Where it's very busy. So I can understand you just trying to get from point A to point B. So you might miss it. But I see a lot of these people, especially in our hospital, not to get too, too like nuanced, but our hospital, the people who are working those service positions are typically look like me, they're black and brown. And so they have experiences similar to mine. So when I talk to them, I dap them up. I talk to them about the Lakers. I talk to them about Jay-Z, Sierra. They're like, oh, we get it. Like we're talking to you. If I talk to my co-residents about it, who wonderful people, but Yale, Hopkins, Princeton, Harvard, you know, uh, they might not know that kind of stuff, right? So it's just, it just feels more at home when I'm speaking to these individuals. And uh, I appreciate Dr. Carson for um, wanting me to make sure that my feet stay on the ground and that I stay uh, humble and keep a, a keen perspective on what's most important. How did you benefit most from your time at Oxford? I think Oxford was a great place to um, learn uh, outside of the athletic bubble. Uh, it was a great time to just be a full-on nerd uh, and meet some wonderful people uh, who went on to be, or who are now, um, very close friends of mine. Shad White is the auditor of uh, the state of Mississippi. I think he will be a senator of Mississippi, maybe a governor one day. Uh, he is that remarkable. He's a, he's a Republican and we have different political stance, but that doesn't matter. I, I still love him and we're still very, very close. His political ideology doesn't, doesn't bother me, but we spent so many nights at his college, St. John, just sitting down talking about you know, um, education, talking about sports, talking about paying college athletes, talking about how do we get HBCUs at the same level as the predominantly white institutions, the PWIs. He went to Ole Miss. Um, and, and, and it's crazy that we had that conversation on the, on the doorsteps of St. John's College at Oxford. And then just maybe a couple of months ago, we reconnected to talk about how we can get Deion Sanders and Jackson State 
um, to think about the Rose Scholarship or maybe some of their, you know, gifted players. And mm -hmm. so, you know, these conversations start after a night at the pub in Oxford, and then they come up when I'm a neurosurgeon and he's a state auditor and they're like grown men with kids and wives and, and now, you know, putting it together. So someone like him, someone like Aisha Saad, uh, who is literally probably my best friend over at Oxford, um, you know, from Egypt, Cairo, um, grew up in Cary, North Carolina, went to UNC Chapel Hill, wears a full hijab, Muslim woman, just phenomenal, phenomenal presence, brilliant. We're still very close to this day. Um, I ate with her daughter and her husband, and it's just, it's just remarkable that we, you know, are able to stay close and, and, and continue to build and build off of each other too. Um, so those kind of relationships of individuals like Aisha, who is one of the best lawyers in America, Shad, who I mentioned already, Abdul um, El-Sayed, he ran for governor of Michigan, didn't win, uh, but he's an advocate for health. He was the head of uh, Michigan's um, you know, public health administration. He is a, a remarkable person too. So it's the people you meet, it's the intellect you're able to accrue, it's experiences you're able to have, um, and you know, some of the port that you're able to drink in pubs and things like that, I guess that works too. But uh, it's a, it was a great place. And, and um, you know, I, I really cherish that moment. And for any of my mentees who talk about think um, a Rhodes Scholarship or, you know, some postgraduate fellowship overseas, I always mention how Oxford really changed my life and, and they should really highly consider it. So once you were done with Oxford, you come back to the States, as you just summarized, you uh, end up getting back into football mode. You participate and do great at the Senior Bowl. Uh, it was a mixed bag in Indianapolis for the scouting combine. You admit that it was a little bit of pressure, a little bit of uh, just getting terrible sleep that week. And uh, ultimately, you go through the draft process, end up hearing your name called on day three, which you wholly admit, and it's completely understandable that it's disappointment, uh, disappointing. And discussing that disappointment, you wrote one of my favorite sentences in this book, Myron, how you move forward from a setback is critical. How did you become better as a result of this disappointment? You know, I, I became better by really pouring into that 2% way and thinking about, you know, where, where do you want to go, Myron? Like introspectively, think reflective of, of who you are and where you need to be. Yes, it's disappointing. Yes, you know, you're, um, you might have let some people down who expected you to go high in the draft or you know, um, you know, to be walking across the stage in New York City. Um, but at the end of the day, you got your foot in the door and now it's time to, to do more uh, with what you have. You know, God gave you this ability. He put you in a place for such a time as this. Now it's time to work and grind. And so the disappointment turned into motivation to continue to work, to continue to grind, uh, to put in the effort, the energy, uh, to use the resources around me. Um, and, and, and forward movement. And, um, and that process is so valuable, that 2% way process, because it blocked out uh, all of the distractions of you know, some of those sentiments that I was hearing uh, and feeling and allowed me to hone in and have this laser discipline on, okay, what can I do now to stay here? What can I do uh, to be a better athlete? What can I do um, to continue to move forward towards um, my goals after I'm done playing football? Um, uh, in medicine, in neurosurgery, in, in healing people, in uh, public health, in global health, and in, in being a global citizen of the world. So um, disappointment sometimes jars you and recenters you and resets you to where you need to be. And then the process of small steps, small victories every day, like we write about in the book, um, you know, I think helps um, mitigate some of the, uh, the angst that one can feel uh, when you do think that you're at a low point. 
You spent your rookie year on the Titans practice squad. Between your first and second year, you actually took part in a Clinton Global Initiative to combat sexual violence in Congo and Rwanda. This involved literally traveling to those countries to petition their governments and get involved in policy and advocacy. How did uh, that time in Africa change you for the better? That was a wonderful time. You know, I got selected to go there because I had given a talk in Little Rock, Arkansas at President Clinton's library. Uh, he saw me speak and he was impressed. Uh, next thing you know, he invites me to ask, uh, sorry, invites me to Austin, Texas uh, to speak at the University of Texas at CGIU, Clinton Global Initiative U, where a lot of college students will come together and think about how uh, an initiative can help change the world uh, in, in their corner of the world. I thought it was a phenomenal place. And that experience was funny because I'm there with Nandi Asamoah, all pro cornerback. I'm there with uh, President Clinton. Um, and then I'm there with Matthew McConaughey. And I'm the last to speak at all these people. And I'm like, man, I said, y'all set me up. Y'all set me up. Because <laughs> everyone, everyone's going to want to listen to Nandi for sure. Great player. And then President Clinton, you know, he's the man, rock star with his cowboy boots. And then Matthew McConaughey goes third. And then he just throws up the hook him and like, and it just felt like the whole place melted. And I was like, this is this is, this is not fair. And I didn't want to hear this like little little Rose Geller walk up there. Okay, guys, hey, you know, think, think high, think great of yourself. I don't know. It was just, it was rough, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was great. He, he you know, we, we stayed in touch and we had a great time there. And then from there, he invited me to Aspen, Colorado to be a part of his team called CGI Lead, uh, where it was me, Jeff Gordon, Ashley Judd, Pierre Garçon, um, Laura Bush, Usher, uh, Wes Moore, you know, um, just some really, really phenomenal people. Zainab Salbi, this is an Iraqi lady who was, her family was friends with Saddam Hussein, but then she created this thing called Women for Women International. This is really a great advocacy women support group. Uh, so anyway, all of us went to Aspen. We had a little retreat there, and then we all went to Congo and Rwanda to help fight sexual violence, and it was amazing. I went to Africa, East Africa, thinking that, um, you know, I would feel incredibly saddened for these individuals uh, living in this particular part of the world. But I left feeling encouraged because they were not feeling sad for themselves. They said, this is my reality and this is how I'm going to make it through. And I was like, it was just great to just see the hope, the power, uh, the pride in the eyes of, of um, those citizens in that part of the world. And to take that in with somebody as cool as Jeff Gordon, you know, we're dancing, we're ha having a good time, we're eating dinner together. It's just it was remarkable. So, yeah, it was a fascinating time. And it happened, honestly, because the lockout was 2011. And so it gave a lot of players extra time to do different things. And I ended up going and uh, it was a blast. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, it's still a head scratcher for me that uh, you didn't last past three years in the NFL. But uh, there's an interesting theory out there as to why. And honestly, knowing that the NFL was the powder keg that it was at the time, it makes a lot of sense to me. So why do you think your time in the league was cut so short, Dr. Roll? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's a couple of reasons, but I think the one of the main reasons um, is, is this. Uh, you know, I was a smart player um, who had interests outside of football, especially interest in the brain and uh, neurosurgery, traumatic brain injury, concussions was a hot topic at the time with the movie concussion just coming out. Uh, I thought that the NFL, you know, believed maybe I had um, a lot of interest outside of the sport, that if something were to happen to me, um, that I would end up leaving the sport, or if something happened to me where I could not go on to be a neurosurgeon, it would provide more of a stain in the reputation of the NFL and how poorly they had managed players 
uh, active and uh, retired with traumatic brain injury and potentially chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So I think it was a confluence of issues. And one thing I knew it wasn't was my talent, right? I, I did not depreciate in my skill in a year and a half because every game that I played, I, I recorded either the most tackles or near the most tackles. And I played very well. And all of my teammates and coaches agreed, Myron, you've got eight to 10 years in you. We can see it. One coach of mine, Dave McGinnis, linebacker coach in, in Tennessee, told me that, you know, he's been coaching football longer than I've been alive. And he knows talent when he sees it. He says, you can play eight years easily. When I got released from the Steelers, that was my second team. Um, and I texted all the, the defensive backs immediately. All of them called me back. Uh, you know, not not because they were trying to campaign or such, but they were so shocked. They couldn't believe what they were reading on the text from Troy Palomalu to Ike Taylor to Ryan Clark. All called me and said, you know what? I am shocked. You are balling out here. You know, everything you did was great. You didn't embarrass yourself. You played well. I can't believe this happened. Just, they were sort of dumbfounded that, that we were taking this moment. And I remember after one of my games, uh, Larry Foote, who never talked to me, linebacker from Michigan, never spoke to me ever. Doesn't talk to people in general. But he took off his headphones, looked in the back of the bus and said, hey, roll. And I was like, oh, shoot, Larry Foote says something to me finally. And uh, he goes, you balled out, man. Good job. Put his headphones back on. And that was the last time I ever spoke to him ever again. So I was like, man, if Larry Foote is willing to take off his headphones, and tell me that I play well. And Larry's an all-pro guy, great linebacker. I said, I know it wasn't my talent. I know it wasn't my skill. There was something else at work and at play. But at the end of the day, um, you know, looking back on it now, I think that there was something at work where maybe God was protecting me from breaking up my hand so I couldn't be a neurosurgeon. Or maybe God was protecting me from a serious traumatic brain injury or a CTE so that I couldn't think cognitively through some complex pathologies, disease pathologies that walked through the door at Mass General Hospital at Harvard. Um, so, so maybe it was a way that I was protected. But if I had to do it again, I would take the same path, going to Oxford, taking that year and a half off, coming back and, and playing. I, I made a lot of friends. I made a, a little bit of money so I could pay for medical school. Uh, mm -hmm. So I didn't have to be in too much debt with that. And um, I, got, I got out healthy. So I'm able to hopefully have value to the world beyond the football field. What's your biggest regret about your time in the league? Uh, I think my biggest regret was probably um, not thinking about concussions and traumatic brain injury as seriously as I do now. Um, I believe that uh, when I was playing, I just wanted to be such a football player. I wanted to direct every conversation towards football. When coaches or beat writers were asking me about, um, you know, the opponent that we were playing the next day or about a specific coverage that we were doing, um, you know, I was like, okay, let me talk about that. Great. But if they asked me about Bill Clinton or the Rhodes Scholarship or neurosurgery or concussions or a new article that Malcolm Gladwell had written, like, I'm like, no, 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 let's talk about blitzes. Let's talk about coverages. Let's talk about, you know, uh, how we're going to play this quarterback who likes to look off his, um, his defenders. Uh, I wanted to be all in and show that and sort of remove any semblance of intellect or intellectual curiosity. Uh, from my my space, from my lexicon, from all of it, and um, and so I regret that because I think this it was a it would have been a great platform for me to really shine light and advocate for uh, brain health, um, safety, head trauma, uh, as well as any other thing that I think um, would have been um, you know very impactful 
for young people to hear uh, and for, for people who were maybe not football fans uh, to, um, to experience. You know, if, if they don't watch football every Sunday, maybe hearing from a football player that talks about brain health, concussions, mental health, CTE, depression, these sorts of things, it would open up their eyes. I remember going into classrooms and telling people that I was a Rhodes Scholar and they're like, okay, I'm, I wanna be a neurosurgeon, okay. I play in the NFL, oh my gosh, L eyes light up and they just get crazy for it. So the pull that the NFL has on this country, on the world uh, is amazing. And I feel like I did not use it enough. So that's a huge regret of mine. So after you get cut by the Steelers, you end up going back home to mom and dad and your mom actually helps you find your way forward post-football. She pulls out an old list where you had written down two goals as a kid. One was to play in the NFL, check. The other was to become a neurosurgeon. And so that uh, helps you find that next path post-football. You end up deciding on Florida State for med school, and uh, you uh, eventually graduate med school, which is uh, what allows you to select a residency. And uh, for you, the two most important qualities when selecting a residency had to do with community and vision. Why is this? And what was it about Harvard, Massachusetts General Hospital that fit those qualities so well? Well, I think that um, the community at uh, Mass General uh, Harvard was was strong in that it felt like a locker room again. It felt like a team again. It felt like everyone was working on the same page and there wasn't um, a very malignant or negative culture uh, that made you apprehensive about getting into work every day. Because if you're going to go through the doldrums of residency with the hours along and you're beaten up often, people yell at you, you make mistakes, you feel bad about those mistakes, you're trying to make it through, uh, you wanna go to a place that's supportive and that you feel a sense of communal, a communal experience. Uh, and, I, and I felt that when I went up to Boston and went to Mass General Hospital. Those walls, those providers, those nurses, the food service individuals, materials management, security guards, they're all amazing, uh, literally. I just, I feel like if you can take Mass General Hospital and just replicate it anywhere else, uh, your experience will, will be very fruitful, especially as a trainee. So that was, that was really important for me. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that it was a place that I could see myself being the pediatric neurosurgeon that I wanted to be. Being a pediatric neurosurgeon that also extends his care uh, to the vulnerable populations, especially in places that matter to me, which were like the Caribbean, for instance. Um, I started my Caribbean Neurosurgery Foundation uh, to try to uh, step in the gap and the void of um, access issues that exist for um, people who live in remote parts of the Caribbean. My aunt died in 2010 after being hit in the head by a car. She had a traumatic brain injury. She was in our, our home family island of Exuma. She laid there for about an hour or so and then went to our local clinic and did not see a, a neurosurgeon, did not see a nurse, did not get an MRI or a CT scan, no diagnostic workup. She died seven hours after not being seen by anyone. And so that's a preventable death uh, that was frustrating to me in 2010. And now as I grow in my neurosurgery career, uh, I started my own foundation to try to build capacity and upscale the neurosurgical system in the Bahamas and around the Caribbean. Uh, so these preventable deaths don't happen anymore. A timely, equitable access to care for the most vulnerable populations occur. and. Mass General Hospital has wholly supported me in this. 
Uh, we went down to Antigua and Montserrat, did a bunch of surgeries down there. I've been to the Bahamas, I've been to Guyana doing surgeries there as well. It's really been amazing that that program at Mass General, my department, my chair, Bob Carter and others do have the vision, support my vision of wanting to um, you know, be a global neurosurgeon, um, a global pediatric neurosurgeon in particular, uh, who sees value in not only saving a life on the operating table, uh, but also changing systems so that more people can be affected and uplifted and, and have a chance at a meaningful life. Yeah, it's heartbreaking what happened to your aunt, but that serves as a catalyst to help motivate you to make sure that it doesn't happen to somebody else who has a family member who has to sit there and suffer like that over the course of seven plus hours. That's right. And you know, the golden window for urgent or emergent um, traumatic brain injury or neurosurgical care is typically four hours. That's what the academic literature says. And when you get outside of that, your prognosis is dismal. I mean, your chances of survival go down exponentially. And so that's why access and communication and getting systems aligned and having diagnostic imaging to work things up and having people with the education on the ground to sort of stabilize these patients and maybe extend that window by doing some very simple maneuvers, right? If somebody has a brain injury and you know it's a brain injury because the left side of the body's weak and their right pupil may be a little bit bigger. So they have a brain bleed on this side, which is pressing on the motor strip and the sensory strip and all the different functions of this side of the brain that controls the opposite side of the body. If you know that, then if you leave the head of bed up maybe 30 degrees, you can have the internal jugular vein sort of drain that, that blood away, gravity help, and that reduces intracranial pressure. If you can start some anti-epileptics, some anti-seizure medications, Ativan or whatever, you can reduce seizures, which we know from the academic literature, from evidence says reduces the chance of death or current or, or, or um, you know, long-term uh, morbidity uh, after traumatic brain injury. So there's some things that you can do right away that can extend that four hour window to maybe seven, eight, nine, 10 hours until the definitive neurosurgical care comes where you get that patient transported to a neurosurgical facility that you can take off the skull, you can evacuate the blood, you can put the skull back on, that patient can, leave, can live. And so knowing that there are ways that you can save lives on the ground. If you're in Exuma or Anagua or Mayaguana or part of Guyana or part of Trinidad or part of Barbados that doesn't have a neurosurgeon, if you know these things as an EMT or as a nurse or as a you know, frontline provider, then you can do uh, your work in sort of helping us save lives. And so that's what our foundation is about. And that's the sort of push that we want to inject into the region uh, that I think needs it sorely. That's incredible. Uh, congratulations on getting that started and good luck uh, continuing to grow it going forward. Uh, you do a great job of describing the evolution of your relationship with the, your now wife, Latoya. What does your wife mean to you? She means everything to me. Latoya is, uh, she's phenomenal. Pediatric dentist, uh, Christian, mother, wife, sister, daughter. Uh, she holds many, many titles, but to me, I think her, her best title is just being a best friend and someone who believes in me more than I believe in myself at times. You know, the reason I wrote this book was because she talked to me and said, Myra, I, I believe in you and I believe in your story. I think you need to put it on paper. And I was telling her, man, I'm going through residency. It's cold in Boston. No, no one wants to hear from a resident. You know, it's, it's, it's tiring. Like, what am I going to say? Anyone's going to want to listen to. And she says, look, every time we go out to eat or we get emails and direct messages, people always saying how your story is inspiring them. And I remember how you told me that Ben Carson's story inspired you. Uh, now it's time for you to do the same. I believe in you and do it. And every time she, she believes in me and I'm like sort of wavering, 
it always comes true. And, and that's because she's a prayerful woman, because she knows me better than anybody else. Uh, and it's phenomenal. And we've, we met through a mutual friend and we were always distant, right? She didn't live in Boston, but we'd always spend time together. She'd fly to Boston or I'd fly to wherever she was practicing as a dentist. And, um, and now we have four beautiful children together, uh, two sets of twins, boy, girl, twins. Uh, one are 21 months and the other ones are three weeks old. So we're like brand new in it. Uh, her mother lives with us and we have a nanny, a night nurse. My mother lives not very far away. Mommy is 30 minutes away or so, daddy as well. So it's, um, it's a blessing to have her. She is everything. And, um, you know, having life now, doing life as the head of my own family, um, but with her right next to me, um, it's just, uh, it, it, it brings it all together. It makes it all that much more, more rewarding. Did you say two sets of twins? Two sets of twins, yeah. Zora and Zayed are the oldest, and then Zanzi and Zafar just born three weeks ago. So two sets, boy, girl, boy, girl. So you talked about the first set in the book. Uh, I am blown away the fact that you had a second set of twins, Myron. I got to, you know, even though you're athletic, you're very smart. I think uh, the the underrated element of this entire story of yours up to this point is that you apparently have super sperm, also. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Something's happening, man. I, you know, it, it just uh, it makes us nervous to to, you know, th think about what we can do in the future. Uh, she's like, Myron, let's, let's wait a couple of years before we even think about it. I said, yeah, that's fine. I said, I'm okay with that. But uh, it was crazy when we found out that it was going to be another set. Uh, I think the OB guy, like she got unprofessional for a second and she started cursing. She was like, oh my God, like what is going on? Because <laughs> she's never seen that before. And, and obviously we didn't expect that. Yeah. We expect to, like maybe just one. Because I knew she, she, she was pregnant. She had the stakes. She was pregnant. So I said, okay, maybe one is on the way. But two and then another boy girl was just remarkable. All natural too. And Otoya was such a champ through it all. I mean, carrying those kids and having back pain. She's not a big woman. So like her stomach got huge and it was just tiring for her. And she was ready for them to come out and they did very healthy. And so we're just blessed. God's been good for sure. I've got a seven and five-year-old at home and it is truly one of the most miraculous things watching your wife deal with that. And you're just kind of the, the helpless guy who did the one thing in the beginning and you, you try and help in ways that you can, but ultimately you are a complete waste of space a lot of the time. <laughs> exactly. You're exactly right. All right, last question, Myron, because you do still watch football. You love your Florida State Seminoles. I love the, my Texas Longhorns, and college football is my favorite sport. It was about 10 months ago that uh, we finally got a change on name, image, and likeness to allow college athletes to profit in an industry that reaps billions of dollars per year. Long time coming, and despite the fact that we have a lot of people claiming that the sky is falling now because there's always going to be an inevitable learning curve, uh, this is a better place to be than all of this happening under the table. For you, what do you think the best way forward is with regards to NIL, its impact on college sports? Uh, I, I, I love the idea. Uh, I think that um, it absolutely makes sense. I remember my brother went to school in uh, Jamaica, Queens, New York, uh, at a school called St. John's, really good in basketball. And um, they had a player there named Marcus Hatton, um, really, really good player. And I remember hanging out with my brother one time in the city in Manhattan, and we're, we're walking downtown, like, oh, about Times Square. And there's a huge billboard that said there's only one man dash Hatton, right? Like his name. And his number was number one. And it had a picture of Marcus Hatton, you know, making a layup or doing something crazy. And I was like, man, I said, this guy is in New York City. I wonder how much money he's making from that. 
like from that big billboard in Times Square in New York City with his name, with his jersey, such a cool ad. What is he getting from that? And that, and that, and I was in high school at that point. I was at Hun. I just went to visit my brother when he was at St. John's. And I was like, man, this is unbelievable. From that point forward, I realized, you know, it's a huge business and everyone's making something except for the athletes. So I appreciate the fact that athletes are now having an opportunity uh, to, to earn, uh, especially those who come from disadvantaged and marginalized communities. I had several teammates that were sending some of their scholarship money, their Pell Grants home uh, to Miami, Florida, Polk County, Florida, to Duval County, Jacksonville, to take care of their family because they really didn't come from anything. And now they have an opportunity to, to, to do this. I think it's important. One thing I would say um, that I, I would love to see is just the continued equity of NIL deals in the women's sports as well. I, I'm very, very, I feel very strongly uh, that women's basketball, track and field, all the women's sports, Olympic and non-Olympic sports, uh, should have the same level of opportunities and there should be a mechanism, someone smarter than me can figure out how to make sure uh, that women are on, on the same playing field and um, you know, have those same opportunities uh, that some of the men or some of the more visible sports get college basketball, men's college basketball, college football. Um, because what, what you don't want to see happen is just the continued disparity and continued gap uh, you saw the women's U.S. women's soccer team uh, fighting for equal pay. Megan Rapinoe and those other ones were talking about that. And I appreciate them standing forward to do that. But you had the best players in the world with the best team every single year having to, like, you know, stomp for this to happen. And they almost they barely didn't get it, right? They barely got it, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think you have to have champions for these women uh, from them and from others around them to make sure that there's still noise around here, that we make sure that the volleyball player is, is getting the same opportunity that maybe a men's baseball player from LSU or Miami or, you know, UC Fullerton or wherever uh, gets as well. Well said. He is Dr. Myron Roll. The new book is The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery. Get it now wherever books are sold. Myron, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important, awe-inspiring book. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thank you to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. Thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.